0: Castle's services operate from the lands of the Darkin Young people to the south, the Awabakal people to the east, the Waramai people to the north, and the Wanarua people to the west. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands where we work and live. We pay our respects to the elders of these lands past, present, and emerging. Welcome to the latest episode of Embrace Your Otherness, Castle's inaugural podcast series where we will have both casual and in-depth conversations with disability community members, leaders, advocates and activists about disability identity, culture, work and rights with a real emphasis on challenging people's perceptions and opening their minds to new ways of thinking about marginalised identities. My name is Brad Webb and I'm honoured to be both the CEO of Castle and the host of this podcast series. Today, we are going to be talking about inclusion in the workplace, exploring ways to create a more diverse and inclusive work environment, and embracing diversity and inclusion as a business strategy. My guest today is Declan Edwards. Uh, Declan is a thought leader in the field of happiness, and the founder of BU Happiness College, an organisation that is growing global happiness by an empowering people with the tools and the team to thrive. As a published author, podcast host, and international keynote speaker, Declan is actively bringing the skill set of happiness back to the people and creating a world where we can all thrive. He actively explores this connection between happiness, workplace culture, and workplace performance in the podcast, Working Well with Declan Edwards and Josh Devon. Welcome, Declan. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. So we have to start right at the beginning. What on earth is a happiness researcher and what is a happy workplace?
1: They're both fantastic questions. The first one in particular I get asked quite regularly. When I tell people my job is to research happiness, one of the first things people say is, what does that even mean? Now, what I specifically mean by that is I've studied and continue to study now a field called positive psychology. So positive psychology uh, emerged about 20, 30 years ago. Basically, uh, from these great forethinking psychologists such as Dr. Martin Seligman, who looked around and went, hang on, we're spending 98% of our funding and research in psychology into what is quote unquote wrong with people and how to quote unquote fix them. Why aren't we looking at what's right with humanity? Why aren't we looking at what makes life worth living? And so he suggested this idea of We need to put more effort into scientific uh, study and understanding of what it means to not just go from minus 10 to neutral, but how we can go from neutral to plus 10, how we can feel we're fulfilling our potential, we're flourishing and we're thriving. And thus the field of positive psychology was born. Colloquially, it's uh, referred to as the science of happiness. And so that's what it means to be a happiness researcher.
0: So when people, I mean, I think we throw around terms like happiness and wellness and, and industries hijack those terms and use them and there is a sense that some people go, oh, here we go, it's this new age stuff. So you're telling me there's something more to it than just a new age way of thinking and putting a smile on your face?
1: It, correct, yeah. So the, I think this is what I love about positive psychology is how rigorous it is. It's a very well-researched and evidence-based field. And in terms of new age, something I like to remind people of a lot is these aren't really new age questions. We've been asking since the dawn of mankind and since the ancient Greek philosophers, what does it mean to live a happy and fulfilling life? I think in the world we're living in now where change is becoming so much faster and there's so much uncertainty and and, and chaos in the world, people are craving answers to those questions even more so. And it's a really beautiful moment in the development of our understanding of this to go, hey, we're not just making up ideas about this anymore We're doing these large-scale studies and this really rigorous research to go this is what leads to living a happier more fulfilled life or being happier at work
0: so at a personal level what's the journey that took you from being declan not doing positive psychology research into this this world of of happiness and the impact that has on wellness Mm. a lot of people meet me these
1: days and i think they make the mistake of going of course, he studies happiness. He's a very happy guy. He's always been happy. And uh, that's quite far from the truth, to be honest. I spent a lot of my particularly high school years uh, with a very clear blueprint for what a happy and successful life looked like. And that blueprint to me involved going to school, getting good grades, going to university, getting good grades, probably joining the military because that's what nearly every male for five generations has done in my family, either military or police force. Uh, and you know, following the societal blueprint of, Once I get the job, I'll meet someone nice, I'll settle down, get married, have kids, white picket fence, two dogs, retire one day, and then I'll be happy. Uh, And I realized pretty early on that that wasn't working. I started looking for other answers. And unfortunately, at the time, social media was becoming a big thing. And so I started seeking out my answers for what does happiness look like by comparing myself to what I was seeing on social media. And what that led to for myself was... Falling onto what we now know, looking back, is something called the hedonic treadmill, which we've all been on. And so if you're listening to this, I encourage you to reflect on what your hedonic treadmill is. The hedonic treadmill is I'll be happy when. Insert whatever you want after it. And we chase it. And then we get closer, and the happiness goalposts seem to move. So for me, it was I'll be happy when I lose five kilos. Lost five kilos, wasn't happy yet. I'll be happy when I lose another five kilos. And I kept going. And unfortunately it led to a point where 18, 19 years old, I was in and out of hospital uh, with disordered eating and and body image issues, which at the time weren't very well researched uh, at all, but specifically for men. It wasn't something that people were thinking men were struggling with. And after doing all these tests and and trying to find out why I was so sick and unwell, eventually I saw the impact it was having on my mom who is one of my heroes in life and someone I'm very grateful for. And it was this real wake-up call that how I thought and felt about myself, my own levels of happiness or unhappiness, didn't just impact me. I think happiness we think of very individualistically. We think it's just about ourselves. But our own happiness or unhappiness spreads a ripple effect, whether we intend it to or not. And the more I became conscious of that ripple effect, the more I wanted To change it. I wanted to have a more positive impact on people around me so I reached out to some great mentors and coaches and friends and got a lot of help and support with my own mental health journey and a common theme through all of this self-work and learning and development was positive psychology as a field and I went okay if they're doing this amazing work I want to go learn what they're doing and thankfully was able to get a a, uh, entry into a postgraduate degree in positive psychology Uh, with Central Queensland University. And I guess the rest is history.
0: And you talk about hedonic, the pursuit of hedonic happiness. Mm. Now, I presume that's a derivative of hedonistic. Yes. The the chasing of the high, the happiness high. Yes. What's the other side then? If you're not pursuing hedonic happiness, what's, what's on the flip side of that?
1: Yeah, so we talk a lot about these two different types of happiness. Hedonic happiness is one, and you've hit the nail on the head hedonism. It's about dopamine and joy and excitement and accomplishment and achievement. And interestingly, if you ask a lot of people in Western societies what happiness is, a lot of the time they're going to talk about hedonic happiness because that's what we've been raised to to believe is happiness. On the flip side, we have something called eudaimonic happiness, which is more a sense of uh, contentment, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and connection. And so we see this... uh, this concept really be elevated and celebrated a lot more in other cultures outside of say the US, the UK and Australia.
0: So taking that into life, Mm. how does somebody become happy? Mm. I
1: think first and foremost, I want to be really clear with people listening to this. There is no one in the world who has a one size fits all answer for a happy life for 8 billion people including myself. I don't care how much research I've done or how long I spend in this space. I'm not some magical guru who can say, this is what you should do to be happy all the time. But what we do know from the research are common themes. Uh, Specifically, there is a recipe for happiness that positive psychology has found. It goes, these are the common threads. It's up to you now to define how you meet them and how much value you place on them. And it forms an acronym called PERMA. Now, I recommend not only thinking of this in your own life, but also in your workplace. And in your team how much are these common threads of happiness being met and fulfilled and so the first part of perma p is positive affect which to put in simple terms just means how often are you doing things that make you feel good which seems overly simplistic a lot of the time i roll my eyes at it and i go wow the secret to happiness is do more things that make you feel good thanks for all the research and is
0: is that the kind of things like the hedonic happiness the the the, the, the the sugar highs Correct. of happiness. Yeah, yes. and Things it's funny. they give you great joy and excitement. and
1: Exactly. And as much as I roll my eyes at it, we take uh, an event on tour every year around Australia called the Art and Science of Happiness. And we teach this framework for happiness and we ask people to reflect on which ones they haven't been looking after. And it's so common that people go, actually, you know what? I don't remember the last time I prioritized something that made me feel good.
0: Hmm.
1: I'm so busy looking after family and work demands and juggling all of this stress. I haven't really set aside the time to look after me. And so as much as I laugh at it, it is very important to get that reminder. And then if we go to the second part of the model, it's the E, which stands for engagement and flow. This is more that eudaimonic happiness. This is doing things that help you lose sense of self and sense of time. So you can fully immerse yourself in it. So for me, for example, I get this from music. When I play guitar, I'm fully in the moment. Whereas my wife gets this a lot from being in nature. When she's outside going for a hike, she can completely lose hours. Whatever it is for you that helps you lose sense of self and time, and if you are getting this in your work, even better. We know from the research that the more often people feel that sense of flow in their life and that deep engagement, the happier they rate themselves as. So It's a really important one. And then the third one, if we go through the the remaining uh, couple, uh, is R, which is Relationships. Again, I think it's one that's often been overlooked in a lot of Western philosophy around happiness. It's very individualistic normally, but we cannot deny the impact that communities and the people in our life have on us. So the more we can create supportive, connected, diverse, you know, equitable, inclusive uh, communities that elevate and support each other, the better everyone is. Right? No one loses from that. Unfortunately, that's one that's really being missed a lot at the moment. There's an epidemic
0: of loneliness that's been happening for quite a few years. And no shortage of research that talks about the impact of that. And in fact, loneliness can actually be a greater contributor to ill health and early premature death than heart disease and cancer. Exactly.
1: We were talking just obviously before the podcast, but this common thread keeps coming up in the research lately of we are the most connected we've ever been as a species and the most disconnected at the same time and there's a real problem there that needs to be addressed and then our last two in the official form of this recipe for a happy life uh, is m m is meaning and purpose now this doesn't mean answering the big question of what's the purpose of life Yep. if you have solved that for yourself i applaud you i congratulate you send me an email with what your answer is i'm always curious it's more about finding the moments of purpose and meaning in the day-to-day activities if you can find Uh, purpose in things that you do consistently anyway. The common example I give of this is a few years ago, a video went viral of someone saying they made their bed every morning. And for them, it wasn't just about the act of making the bed. It was if the rest of the day didn't go to plan, they still feel like they accomplished something. It gives them a tidy and clean space to come back to afterwards. So it had a lot of meaning to it for an activity that was just a day-to-day thing. And this is why I love this framework Because you get to decide what gives you meaning and purpose. I tried making my bed every day for 12 weeks. It means nothing to me. Much to my wife's disappointment, it doesn't add anything to my sense of meaning and purpose. So that's not part of my recipe. And then the last one, A, uh, is achievement and accomplishment. Mm. It's about setting goals that matter to you. It's about doing things that push your comfort zone, about learning and growing. They're talking a lot in the research now about adding a H to the end of this PERMA model, which is health which I do think is going to come through in the research, the links between mental health and physical health, we're seeing so much more now. Yep. Um, so I would bet my left leg, and for the listeners, if you see me wandering around, and missing a left leg in future, maybe my bet went wrong, but I would bet my left leg that health is gonna be included in this model yep. too.
0: Just closing that loop. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah. So in terms of your answer your question, what's it mean to live a happy life? I mean, there's a six step recipe. Mm. Anyone mm. can take it away and start answering those questions for themselves. What brings me each of these?
0: And I was thinking about uh, a couple of – what it was funny and I'll, I'll share that with you is uh, when you were talking particularly about the, the middle section about engagement and relationship mm. and meaning, um, for some reason um, a friend who's involved in land care popped into my mind. You know, they love the idea of contributing to a better environment for people but they love doing it with other people and when they are involved in land care they get completely lost. They can spend days um, working on a, on a block – to improve it, and so it's that inter interaction between all of those elements, also that then just create that that sense. I imagine. Yeah. So how does that translate for workplaces? Let's talk about happiness in the workplace. Why why would you, as an organisation, pursue a happy workplace as a strategy? Why is that a smart strategy? And then, what would that look like? Mm. So in terms of the why, I'll pinch a quote from Tony Hsieh,
1: who was the CEO and founder of Zappos. Uh, he really put workplace happiness on the map as a, stra- as a strategy for workplace success. And there's this beautiful quote, he says that workplaces often overlook the value of workplace happiness and they suffer for it because you cannot deliver great service from unhappy employees. It's that simple. The model of what a successful workplace is is dramatically changing right now so for hundreds of years the priority list for a successful organization has been priority one serve shareholders and stakeholders get a good return on investment priority two give great customer service look after your customers priority three look after your staff and what's happening in the last particularly the last 20 years is people are going hang on what if we flip that entirely on its head what if we really look after our staff and team and make sure they're happy and fulfilled and performing their best work? Well, chances are they're then going to contribute to a really great customer experience and they're really gonna look after the communities and the people and the, you know, um, the, the customers that we serve and look after. And then that's gonna to lead to people referring more, coming back more, we're gonna have a you know, better reputation and that's then going to impact the bottom line and help shareholders. It's like we've had the priority order completely backwards for well over a hundred years. And in the last 20, people are going, it makes way more sense to flip it. Now, if you want to get into the numbers, I love talking to businesses about workplace happiness and going, this is not just a fluffy concept anymore. The research has found on average that every dollar invested into increasing the happiness of your team and your staff over a 12 month period gives a $2.60 return. Now, if I came to you and said, here is a machine that you can put you know, $10,000 into, and it's going to spit out $26,000 over the next 12 months. That's outperforming the share market right now. That's outperforming the property market. Sure. Like, it's crazy to not do that. And how that number's figured is direct and indirect costs that it saves. So, on average, if a staff member quits because of burnout, it's going to cost you about 33% of their salary to replace them. By the time you go through recruitment, training up, getting them to the level of the previous staff member, um, if there is mental health leave involved in that, that's an extra cost. We know we lose about, businesses are losing about 17,000 a year per staff member that's actively disengaged in lost opportunity and poor performance and, and lowered productivity. And it's about, from memory, seven to 9,000 per year for low being. If you start looking at organizations of 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000 employees, those numbers add up really
0: quickly. So as a subset of the research uh, questions that are being asked in happiness research, do you see this growing emphasis on organisations wanting to understand the impact, understand the bottom line impact? Because fundamentally, we still have operate in that kind of model of, of producing a return on investment. Is that a growing subset of the research question? It is. It's a, a particularly
1: uh, from COVID and onwards. So that 2020 onwards, there is more and more interest. I think because the way people work and the way people think of how work fits in their life has dramatically been disrupted, We're seeing this real acceleration towards things that were probably coming anyway. So hybrid and virtual work is a big one that people talk about. These were going to happen eventually anyway, COVID accelerated. it, And there's a lot of workplaces now scrambling to keep up. And so as a result, there's more and more of this sense of, Hey, we don't need to say economic growth and staff happiness are opposites. They're actually the same. If you, as I've mentioned before, if you focus on staff happiness and you have happier staff, I think that there was a, a big study recently that found on average, publicly listed and traded companies that had really great staff culture and really great staff well being in place and scored highly on those metrics outperformed their competitors by 20%. Mm-hmm. It is a strategic advantage now to become a happy workplace.
0: And I think that, um, you know, COVID. Brought us many challenges, but it also gave us some great gifts. And I think shifting paradigms, particularly around workplaces and how people work together, what brings them satisfaction, even the old trope of "you need to have office, be in the office to be productive," was thrown out the window when we suddenly couldn't be in the office and still s- discovered that businesses were not only functioning, but in some cases thriving with that with that shift in paradigm. So I think we're at, we've reached a point of where organizations are seeing that fundamental demographic shift and demand from employees, but also open-minded to exploring opportunities and exploring concepts like happiness. So let's talk about that. If you're a workplace that's contemplating, you've, you've heard this and you thought, wow, that sounds interesting. What are the steps to becoming a happy workplace? Do you start putting up a couple of smiley signs and, <laughs> and, and, and laughing more? What do you practically start doing?
1: So the first thing we encourage all workplaces to do is start measuring it. There's this age old saying, what we measure, we can manage. And a lot of the time organizations aren't accurately or effectively measuring things that were previously thought of as intangibles of the workplace. We've spoken for decades about the importance of culture, the importance of engagement, the importance of well-being. We know that burnout's becoming an increasing risk in a lot of industries, particularly in helping-based industries like allied health, nursing, social work. The issue was we've been talking about them conceptually without dialing them into something that actually gets tracked in the business performance. When businesses start having a metric or ideally a series of metrics that they can track, that contribute to their workplace happiness. So for example, we spent the last uh, three or four years developing something called the happy workplace accreditation, where we go in and test workplaces, give them their scores for this, benchmark them. And if they meet certain thresholds, they get accredited as a happy workplace. Think of it like the Heart Foundation tick, but instead of for good food, it's for good workplaces. And the five contributing areas that we found for that that need to be measured and assessed, how high is the well-being of the team in this workplace? Now, when we say well-being, there's seven types of well-being we look at. How high is engagement in this workplace? And that has three contributors. We look at things like individual engagement versus collective versus growth-driven engagement. We look at culture. And a big part of culture that we recently added in uh, only over the last 18 months was psychological safety and diversity, equity, and inclusion as two massive drivers of culture. How confident and competent are the leaders of this organization? We know leaders and managers have a dramatic impact on staff happiness. There's a beautiful saying, people don't leave workplaces, they leave leaders. And so learning how to upskill leaders to be humanistic leaders, to be uh, emotionally intelligent leaders is such a, a core focus area to drive workplace happiness. And then the last one, which is almost a lag measure of the first four, is burnout and turnover resilience. How resilient is this team to changing circumstances and to adapting to stress and pressure because the world is going to keep throwing its challenges. You know, first it was, not first, but recently it's been COVID and we're now talking about the AI disruption. There are going to continue being disruptions. Those are the five things that if workplaces start measuring them effectively, they can make more informed decisions, they can make better strategic plans, they can roll out initiatives that actually work and ideally they become a happy workplace.
0: So, so you just tapped into a passion point of mine and certainly one of the deep cultural values of Castle, and that is diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And we can reference that to some objective definitions. I mean, the Diversity Council itself talks about diversity being the mix of people in the organisation. How, how many ways do, can we demonstrate that we differ from each other, whether that be Gender, sexuality, ethnicity, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander status, your your languages spoken at home, your professions, your education. So, creating a diverse diversity is is creating that mix of people, and inclusion is what you do to get that mix to work. How do you create an environment where people respect each other, they collaborate with each other, they honour each other's contributions to the business, and they can collectively contribute to an organizational outcome. If diversity and inclusion is, this, is, is an element of your metric of measuring happiness, what does your experience tell us about how big an impact diversity and inclusion can have on a happy workplace? And more importantly, why is that the case? Mm. So in terms of how big of an impact, let me frame it this way. Our first version
1: of the workplace happiness diagnostic tool did not measure psychological safety or diversity, equity, and inclusion. We took it to market, had early adopters, and then we read this amazing study that was conducted by Google. And Basically, the summary of that study was the two biggest contributors to a thriving and productive and effective workplace culture, a psychological safety and diversity, equity, inclusion. And so our team had to do a bit of self-reflection and go, hey, we missed both of these. Mm. We really need to look at rolling them in. And so we went back did more research and just found across the board they they are core drivers of a thriving culture. If you want to have a great culture at work, those are your two pillars to start building on. And the reason I mentioned both of them is they really do need to work together. Right? Having ju- just pursuing diversity without inclusion and without psychological safety is really challenging. Mm. It's really tough. You mentioned before the idea of people actually valuing and respecting each other's differences. If that isn't there, if people don't feel psychologically safe to voice their true opinion, to bring their true selves to their team, then the diversity is not going to really make a difference. When they come together, though, the difference is huge.
0: That, that is our experience, particularly in the work we do with disability employment, that um, most people, most employers are very keen to be involved and to engage and to employ somebody with a disability. However, they need help to adapt and change, and it is the partnership between the employer and the employee and the work that we do to facilitate that discussion that enables the adaptation, the, the, the inclusion to really work, as opposed to somebody turning up in the workplace with their disability, with no accommodations, with no adjustments to the, the, the expectations of the role or the position. And then there's this conflict between expectations of both parties that are never met, so the inclusion piece becomes a really important aspect to that um, and I think that uh, when, when we talk about inc- diversity it's not just about quotas it's not just about ticking the box and being able to say look at the real mix of people it's it's the work we do to make sure that they're welcome to make sure that they're part of um, the fabric of of the organisation so how does that relate back I'm interested back to go back to PERMA mm. um, you've got this concept of organisational happiness and 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 the metrics for that and the individual happiness what's the intersection between those two how does how does having a happy workplace fulfill an individual at a at an individual happiness level yeah i mean
1: a lot of those measures we just spoke about with with workplace happiness so high well-being high engagement you know great leaders high culture they have direct ties into those measures of PERMA we spoke about Ideally, you're having some really nice moments in your work. You're having moments where you can laugh and enjoy that positive affect that we first spoke about. Where you can experience joy. Ideally, you're doing work that challenges you and utilizes your strengths so you can engage in flow and be in that engagement and flow. Ideally, you're surrounded by uh, a well-connected, supportive, uh, diverse, inclusive team that helps fulfill that relationship one. All of those measures of PERMA we spoke about earlier in an ideal world, could be, I'm not going to say fulfilled, but contributed to by your work. Now, that doesn't mean, please don't think, if you're reflecting and going, my work is giving me four out of the five, I'm such a failure, I need to work on the fifth one. That's not the case at all. It might be that you get that fifth one from something entirely separate to your work. I've met very happy and fulfilled people who do not get a sense of meaning and purpose from their work, but they do something outside of work like volunteering or they're involved in a community organization, um, you know, or they campaign for, for projects and causes that really matter to them. And that fills up that cup of meaning and purpose. They don't necessarily have to get it from their workplace. Yeah. Yeah. But the more you can get from your work, let's be real with each other, a fair chunk of our life is spent working. A, a large percentage of our waking hours are going to be involved in our career. So if we can... Not only find workplaces as like a mythical unicorn out there that's going to automatically fulfill these, but work collaboratively with our teams, with our leaders, with other organisations in our sector to go. How do we meet these? Not only those five areas we measure for workplace happiness, but how do we contribute to those areas in perma for the individual happiness of our team and clients? And the world's going to be a better place.
0: Mm. I mean, it gives a lot of food for thought. This conversation and. What what we can say in summary is that the research demonstrates that a happy workplace is good for business. So there's no reason not to pursue it. And we know that the research tells us that diversity and inclusion contributes to a happy workplace. So those two working in in partnership with each other are a good thing for business to think about. So what's your advice to an organisation or to an individual or to a leader in an organisation that's hearing this and says okay, how do I take the first step as a leader in that organization or even as an employee who wants to raise this issue within their organization? What's the What's the first step to promote this conversation to Start to start moving on happiness in the workplace? Yeah.
1: So again, I think the first step is make it tangible and trackable because it takes it from being a fluffy concept of workplace happiness to something that could be measured and is really strategic. So those five we spoke about earlier, um, of five contributors to a happy workplace, Know about them. Learn about them. If you're a staff member wanting to promote it with your leadership team, bring it in. If you're a leader trying to roll it out, talk to the team about it. Uh, And then the second one is involve and include your team and your community in this. And this comes back to the diversity, equity, and inclusion part. There's this concept called the Swiss cheese effect, which is we all have blind spots. We all have biases. We all have weaknesses, Now, if I'm in a room of people making a decision about how happy our workplace is going to be and how we're going to move towards that and I look around the room and everyone is looking pretty similar to me, talking pretty similar to me. We've got very similar lived experiences. The risk of that is our, you know, each of us have the holes in a slice of Swiss cheese. You lay us over each other, all those blind spots and holes are lining up and that's where risk comes through. So in terms of mitigating your risk and running this out well, make sure you include the people around you and that you have a diverse range of people involved in this experts you know consultants and partners your own team and yes look for differences of experience and opinion and perspective because it's going to give you a broader uh and safer in the long run
0: approach to becoming a happy workplace thanks for sharing that at an organizational level for the individuals that are out there that think okay this happiness gig sounds like a okay to me and i want to perhaps explore PERMA more Mm. or ask myself those questions. Is there a place that somebody can go, a resource that somebody can access that helps them start to consider this for themselves in the same way that you unpacked that in your own life?
1: Yeah, so thankfully, a lot of positive psychology research is open source. They've really democratised it. Uh, So if you go to authentic happiness, I believe it's called, uh, there are a bunch of evidence-based tests and self-reflection questionnaires and tools from Dr. Seligman and his team at the University of Pennsylvania that you can jump in and utilize. Uh, The other fantastic one is the VIA Character Strengths Test. So you can go in and it'll help you get an understanding of what your unique humanistic strengths are. And they find if you utilize those in your home life, in your work life, you tend to show up as the best version of yourself. Those would be the best two starting points. Uh, And then if they wanted to do anything uh, more in depth from that, obviously, you know, checking out the free resources we have at BU Happiness College on our
0: website. There's some free tools and self-reflections that people can utilise. That's excellent. Declan, thanks so much for sharing this journey. It's a quite, it, it, it's a topic that is a little bit off center to what we would usually talk about in these, but it has so much relevance to the conversations that we regularly have about inclusion, um, the inclusion of people with disability in society and in workplaces. And I think that this concept of happiness uh, is one to unpack and to explore and to continue the conversation with. I'm going to come back to you and ask you the question I ask every guest on this podcast and it is themed Embrace Your Otherness. What does Embrace Your Otherness mean to somebody like you? Mm.
1: What I find really serendipitous about this is if you look at the name of the organization that I run, BU Happiness College, the amount of people who ask me what the BU stands for at the start of it, I go, be you, be yourself. I think that aligns so perfectly with Embrace Your Otherness. The greatest gift that each of us can give our loved ones, our communities, our workplaces, the world as a whole, is to show up authentically and wholeheartedly as ourselves. And that is a journey of self-discovery, of self-compassion, of self-understanding, that although challenging at times is I believe one of the most worthy pursuits we can take. So in terms of what Embrace Your Otherness means, To me, it would be that. Get to know yourself, really get to know yourself, and then bring yourself to your communities that you're in, to your workplace, to your loved ones, and to the world as a whole.
0: Well, that really is serendipitous. Um, I think that is the truth, isn't it? Be you. And that's why you said to us at the start, there's no one recipe for happiness for the 8 billion people on this planet. There are potentially 8 billion recipes for, for happiness that we need to understand and unpack for ourselves. Um, Declan, thank you again so much for coming in and sharing the happiness story and the happiness journey with us. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to, to, to be so open about that, thank you. You're so welcome, thank you so much.